Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Hub Van Bakkel, founder and CEO of Tenzing. Tenzing is a new all-natural energy drink that cuts back on over 50% of the sugar content compared to the rest of the market. And not only are they much less sugary than all of the other comps out there, but they source 100% of their ingredients from nature, right? So no artificial additives, no synthetic this and that, all natural, purely plants. And so in the episode, Hub and I will discuss how exactly the Sherpa people in Tibet were a key part of the Tenzing origin story, getting a beverage startup off the ground, his time as head of marketing at Red Bull, and how exactly those seven years has translated into his operating principles at Tenzing, becoming a carbon negative brand, and using sustainability as a key differentiator in this competitive market. And finally, the moonshot potential for a company like Tenzing. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Hub Van Bakkel, founder and CEO of Tenzing. Hub, welcome to the show. Well, nice to be here. So, Hub, let's set the stage. What is Tenzing? So Tenzing is, we'd like to say that within, for energy drinks, the future is plant-based, low-calorie, and sustainable. And that's what that's Tenzing. So we started about five years ago when there was no such thing. Where all kind of energy drinks were artificial, high calorie, and not really focused on sustainability. They still aren't actually. So nothing has changed from their end. But we launched then five years ago, and yeah, we're still we launched in the UK. It's still going very strong there, and now we've just launched in the US on Amazon only, and in in Holland as well, in the Netherlands. Hell yeah! I was I was gonna say if I'm walking through my local Rite Aid or CVS, the entire energy drink part of the refrigeration section is your usual suspects, all of yeah. which are artificial heavy. And so, what I found really interesting about Tenzing was the early mile, that first Eureka moment. Maybe walk us through how. Tenzing's story is connected to the Sherpa people. Yeah, I have to come clean and say I was actually working for Red Bull for quite some time. And I was there for eight years and I still actually, till this day, and love the brand, actually love the amazing people that work there. But the product I was more distancing from the longer I worked there. And I, I thought it should just be possible to create that same product, or, to, or to, not the same product, but to create the same effect, that uplift with no need for artificial ingredients or high sugars. And so when I left, I thought, okay, should I go for this or not? Was there's always like a scary moment to, in your life to start all by yourself. And then I decided to do it and I said, okay, that, so that was the basic premise. I actually wanted to have something that's from nature for nature. I'm, always, I'm a big nature lover. I uh, love the great outdoors. I love to surf, hike, ski, everything. So I wanted it to be an energy drink from nature for nature. That was always the basic principle. And, and I was traveling at that time, uh, not for work, just with family actually. And interestingly, was also was still finalizing their whole recipe and still didn't have a name. And then I bumped across, when I was traveling in Asia, and I bumped 
across something that the Sherpa drink. They drink a really strong tea with salt called Sherpa tea or Tibetan tea or, or, or butter tea because it, it's, so it's got a strong tea uh, and salt and some uh, and butter even. And then they drink a lemon tea. So they drink like two teas when they're like Sherpas. Well, the Sherpa people, I don't know if you know them, you probably do, but for the people who don't, they're most known for, you know, they live in that uh, area to people from the area, from the, the Nepal region and Tibet. And, and they are most known in the rest of the world for helping Westerners up the mountains. But obviously it's just a, just a great people, it's a great people that live there, but that's what they're known for. And, and they drink these teas. And I, I actually, I had this doctor who was helping me out at the time and a nutritional doctor. And I said, is it a cultural thing that they drink this or is it actually you know, beneficial? And he goes, it's actually beneficial because it's a triple hit of natural caffeine, vitamin C and electrolytes. And that then became the basis of the drink. And then I immediately thought, oh, I'd love to name the drink Tenzing because my dad was always a big Tenzing Norway fan, first man on top of Mount Everest with Edmund Hillary in 1953. And it was that, it was literally one of my eureka moments, it's nearly like a spiritual moment because it's so hard to come up with a name because basically everything is taken. And then I thought, oh, Tenzing just sounds amazing. Zing also means energy. Uh, he's not as well known as he should be. He's one of the heroes of all time, in my in my opinion. And, and then it was really quite cool, actually, as well, because then I got, I had a, a trademark. I had to get a trademark order, of course, to say, okay, uh, is this name still available? And I said, do I need permission of the family? Because Sheriff Tenzing had passed away already in the 70s. And, and he said, no, it's not needed, because Tenzing is, very, is a very common name in that area, let's say Dalai Lama's for Tenzing, for instance. And of course, for me, that didn't feel right. I'm like, I might not need their permission, but I'm gonna go out and try and get their blessing. And then I found them online and then my whole family ended up meeting their whole family. So part of the family actually lives in uh, San Francisco where I met them. And then I met the other part of the family in Nepal, Jumbling. And uh, yeah, so we, they're now partners in the business and we speak, we speak to each other a lot. So, yeah. So that's been an amazing part of the adventure, actually, because it's really amazing to get to know them. And yeah, I've been on a hike with Jumbling up to Temboche Valley. We're actually organizing a new hike. We were going to go last year, but then, of course, a lot of corona hits. Uh, so we're probably going to go 2021 and go, go with Jumbling to the whole tour and the trek he did with his, his dad. Yeah, so that's that's been an amazing part of the journey. That's incredible. Yeah. What I want to better understand before we get into the product uh, the different things you're doing around sustainability today is just a, a bit about what you were doing before Tenzing. One of my favorite pieces of the journey is this junction between, okay, you're working inside of another organization and at some point you feel compelled to take the leap to start your own thing. And so I was you know, stalking you on your LinkedIn and what I found interesting is even when you first started your career, you've always had a knack for consumer products, working at some of the most fascinating companies in the world. So maybe walk us through your first start at Unilever, yes. then where you were part of one of the world's first social networks at MTV. So maybe walk us through those first couple chapters and then obviously Red Bull and then what that junction ultimately looked like. Yeah. Okay, cool. It's like, like an interview question. This is what I always ask people when they would come work for attending. I, yeah, so it was one of the, I've always loved, it's hard to say because let's say marketing and business and it's such a wide field, you could argue. But I, when I was at university, I, was like, I've, I slowly but surely realized that I've, I really like the field of marketing. And I think there's a couple of elements that drew me to it, if I look back now. And there, there's a, and the, the key elements for me are like creativity, because it is a very creative uh, job 
if you can if you want it to be essentially right uh, it's very you know you have to come up with things that people like and that's where the second element comes from the psychology and philosophy and so those have been always areas of interest me a lot and that's so that's why then i thought okay i want to actually get a job in marketing and in holland unilever is actually one of the high if you can get that is like the number one at least back in the day when I started, but it was like, if it wasn't work in marketing, like Unilever was like the highest you could get into. So I got in. So I, I loved that. And I learned a lot uh, on the job. I, but after, so because marketing has this management side to it where you manage projects. And I, two things I missed at the time was a lot of creativity and also the more the event side, because I actually organized one event at Unilever. I was so in love with that event side. So I thought, okay, I want to actually get more into events and more creative. And then MTV came along. Which was not, which was a strange career move because everyone was either you know, saying Unilever go to like Procter and Gamble or McKinsey, all that kind of stuff. Then MTV also came along, and I, I didn't even know you could work there. I thought it was just like a cool thing. I didn't even realize that, and it was really cool as well. So then I started there and I had my own creative team, and and we were like responsible for those, for the VJs and getting them on board, and, and also one of the first ever social media platforms, even before Facebook was around. And then it, it was very local. So it just got like eaten up. Actually, I was there when Facebook started. And I remember we were talking about it. Like, oh, that looks quite it was, it was back in the day when the social media was, they were like, you know, you didn't have the wall yet, obviously. Uh -huh. You just had your profile pages and you just go on someone's profile page and go, hey, how you doing? Uh, and, but it was also linked to the TV channel. So if you had your profile page, you could actually text to the station and your, your text would come on screen. So it was quite innovative actually. You could ask questions directly to the VJ that the public would then also see. So people would be really cool that they see their own picture on the screen. So That's it was quite- super a, interesting. Yeah, it was quite like, you know, I think well be ahead of its time. I was also just lucky enough to be able to work there at the time and experience that uh, firsthand. So that was really cool. And But funny, I actually have to go but one bit back because at the end of Unilever, I also then, because I missed the creative side, I started my own business as well. It was called uh, Finkelbaum. It was like it was a sock, a sock brand. So we said, okay, all oh, we have to revolutionize the sock, which seemed like a pretty, you know, awesome mission. <laughs> <laughs> Someone has to do it. It was even like some. It was even like because you know, the boxer shorts. When I was young, you'd just get them at the local supermarkets, and then like Marky Mark came around with his Calvin Klein uh, boxer yep. shorts, and then all of a sudden they were like fifty dollars, or you know. So and the sock was still very boring. And it was actually, Happy Socks is one of the biggest, I think they were one of the biggest now. And we started actually a year before them. So the insight was quite cool. Like online shopping was just starting. A sock was something you could easily, you know, post out to people. And um, you didn't have to fit it, like you didn't have to go to it because the people were at the time now, not anymore, of course, they wouldn't like worried buying a jacket or buying like a dress online uh -huh. because they would worry like, well, how's the fit be with socks? That was an issue. So the idea of having an online sock business, which wasn't around at the time, was I think good. But what I then realized, and that I took that to my second venture, we ended up selling it and not making any loss. So that was not bad. We didn't make any kind of you know gain there. But I think um, the key things I learned is that you, you have to really enjoy what you're doing and you have to know your this, your stuff really quite well. Because to be honest, I did see the, and I think the inside was totally spot on. The brand was really cool. It was like it prescribed you did this online test about your cycle. You had to see these pictures, and then you see what do you mm -hmm. see? Those standard psychological tests, and then you'd get prescribed this sock by Dr. Finkelbaum. So it was quite a like a funny, a real funny thing. Like it said, like you know, I had like wear once daily with clothes. And, you know, I it was love quite, that. It was quite. It was, but then I just, I just didn't enjoy it. 
And so I learned, and I wasn't good at it, to be honest, because the, you really need to be like a digital freak to get that, especially that early on, because there wasn't any fulfillment companies. So we had to send all the socks ourselves and all that kind of stuff. So I, it really taught me those, it taught me three things. One, know your stuff really well. If you go, if you start a business, you have to have an, an edge about your own competitive, your own skills and your uh, sets, your skill sets that no one else nearly has. Secondly, you have to enjoy the day-to-day. -day. Funny enough, the day-to-day, -day, the launching was really cool. The day-to-day -day was just literally then sending socks and getting the whole kind of logistics side sorted, which I'm not very good at. And thirdly, like, go all in. So I just did it next to my job. And so I didn't like fully also commit. So those are the three things that I later took when I started my own business. I knew I had to do that. Yeah, so then I was like at MTV for about three years. And then Red Bull came along. And I was actually also just then... Quite interesting because I had the perfect background for them at the time because it was still relatively young. I started, it was already big, Red Bull, to be honest, but I started, what is that now? Like 17, like 15 years ago. Wow. So, well, it really is now, I don't know, 13. <laughs> but Red Bull still had a flash website on the, on the front page of the Red Bull was website, which is their office. YouTube wasn't even around. So when I left eight years later, we had a billion views on YouTube. So it was like, it really, I was part of that whole transition that went from like an old school, old school, like already quite cool energy drinks brand, but to a full on media company it is today. So a question for you. Yeah. Cause I, I want to interject there specifically. Cause I, I, yeah. I think if anything, Red Bull is a case study on what the modern commerce company should look like today. A media company who happens to sell X. And you could even see it. Look at how the org is structured. Massive marketing team. Red Bull produces movies and films and is present at some of the most you know, eye-astonishing events in human feats. Like the most recent thing I can remember is the, 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 like, the skydiving thing from the yeah. – it's crazy. So I'm yeah. curious. Like just – I would love to, what was it like being, you know, I would love to be a bug in the wall. You were present in these meetings and active. Yeah. What were those, what were the conversations like at that time was the team like, hey, we, we have to start telling stories. We like, what, what was that pivotal moment like when the website was just a page of the office? And then at some point y'all say, no, we, we got to turn on the light. We got to, yeah. we got to go all in on, on how we talk to the world about what we're working on. Yeah, exactly. So I think what was at the end of the day, all credits go to the Matashids, the kind of, you know, the, the Austrian par parts of the business that he founded and the European parts and the American parts, because obviously the Red Bull was already a company before that in Thailand. Um, so I think one of the key things that, that was really ingrained at Red Bull from the beginning was already that, that they did a lot of events and they, they, let's up, they did a lot of stuff. And then when, let's say, and then at one point they said, look, we want to become more of a media company. But then it's relatively easy if you're already doing a lot of stuff, then just to bring it, let's say I'm just like really simplifying it here, but then just to bring a camera and film that stuff. Because, and I think I, I had this great, uh, she, she was actually in the UK because I, I was um, head of marketing for the UK and, and Europe for Red Bull. And then I was at, at the, in my UK team, just before I left, the head of, let's say, media she did the whole from the media side. And then a really inspiring lady, her name was Heidi. And she then got poached away by Bacardi. And I remember speaking to her later. And she was quite like, she, she, she left not too long after, I think. But I think the C, she was then global head of content at Bacardi. And then I think the CEO or something came in and asked her, 
like, hey, what content are you going to make? And she asked, what do you guys do that I can make content of? And he was like, I don't know, nothing. <laughs> so that is the key. That's the key premise, I think. If you just, if you don't do anything, then you're basically just making long ads, which is still most companies do. So they're already organizing these events. They're already like organizing air races and FMX, whatever challenges. And so then to make that content into that was, was easier for them than it was for, for many others. And to be honest, like, you know, it's also just a very profitable, I think, you know, Red uh-huh. is quite profitable as you might know what you're really Oh, for sure. Yes. You know, you can't just get to two Formula One teams. So I think they could use those funds to kind of, uh, you know, do a lot of fun stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I want to get into how you've parlayed some of your learnings into Tenzing uh, soon. But first, before we jump back to Tenzing, talk us through the moment in time where you told yourself that it was time for you to get back into the founder's ring. What, mm-hmm. what was that? Did you have a moment? Was it a culmination of events? What happened at that point of the Tenzing journey? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because I, I, I never got like – Especially if you go on Clubhouse these days or whatever, everyone is like a serial entrepreneur, speaker, founder, and CEO. You're like, okay, what, what did you found, CEO, whatever. And so I, think, I would never, I never consider myself a serial entrepreneur. I don't, I don't think I am. I happen to have started a business at the time, actually, but to be honest, through boredom. That was my first one. I was really bored. And, that, and, and I, after that, I just loved my jobs. I've always loved my jobs. So I, I wasn't like, oh, I have to start my own business. But... I think there's this time when I, I, I actually, I, I left and then you start thinking, okay, do I want to work for another company? So and I've always actually been quite anti you know, I don't like hierarchies. I never really liked bosses telling me what to do and snappy to bosses. I've had some really good bosses. I've always been quite like, I want to do my own thing, have creative freedom. So there's that definitely inside of me. That's a strong element. Secondly, um, at that time, I was like, I really felt strongly about this idea, this specific idea. Not, not only did I really think it was like f- worth fighting for, but also I, th- I thought it had an actual shot. You know, I thought this was actually an opportunity, knowing what I knew about like people that they're like, disenfranchised with all the artificial ingredients and all the kind of high sugars. So I thought it was like a combination of that kind of wanting creative freedom, wanting, and also there was a bit of that alliance wanting to test how good I was, if that may, maybe it sounds stupid, but I've been at these big companies and I always think if I wasn't at Red Bull, it would have still been amazing and big. And, you know, so I, I hopefully I made some nice little contributions along the way mm-hmm. as if it would have been looking any different now. You have to be honest with yourself. As if MTV, you know, MTV didn't make it at the end of all. YouTube then started, so they became a bit redundant and they reinvented themselves. But, and then I thought, okay, if, you all, if it's all down to you, will you make it? And I thought that was quite a cool challenge. That was also part of it. Uh, uh-huh. So yeah, I think that's those all those all those things came together, and I thought, okay, let's go for it. I'm curious. It, it's funny because you guys are tinkering in the same arena, and I imagine that there was probably a part of you, an ounce, a pound of you, that had maybe a, a small bit of paranoia. Like, hey, these are what are my? Co- I have to prove that this was worth it, right? You're working on or in the same product category. And you just left a cushy job having impact, making things that are viewed by tens of millions of people around the world, enjoyed by millions of people. And so how did you think about de-risking the launch? 
Did you have this grand checklist? Oh, I'm going to come out and they're going to see that this is already a rocket ship. But what did, how did you think about de-risking Tenzing out of the gate? I'm, there's two things actually in that question I would say. I think one is, if I hear you correctly, it's like, how do I de-risk it towards my old employer kind of? And I didn't have any of those emotions really. The only emotion I actually found I had is that I find it hard to say something negative about them. So it's, I think somehow that's even held me back a bit because let's say if you think about Elon Musk, he obviously is not going to go, well, a Ford is great and like these combustion engines are really good, but you can also try an electric one. He just goes, that's really bad and this is better. Or Oatly does it. Like Oatly, Oatly rides big in the States, I think, as well. So Oatly goes in a ditch milk. Right, they like it's like milk, but hit made for humans. So they're like, so they're going all in on, let's say, the category. And I've always held back because I didn't feel it was right. But I think I should just. I'm in the process of letting that go and going a bit harder because. So, so in that sense, I think that's the only emotion I've had towards them. I, at the end of the day, if I don't make it, they're not going to be surprised. So many people have tried and failed, and so I, I wasn't. So it was more like my my de-risking was more on my own life it was was quite funny because obviously so my wife also works also in marketing business so the first my first point of call was her i had to convince her that we're going to do this and obviously you know i had a decent salary we lived in london houses are quite expensive just like new york and i had this housing allowance if i when i left red bull all of that was gone so i had to i literally had to make a financial plan because i I didn't want to get funding early on because independence was so important for me I thought, let's, I can try and fund this myself by taking a loan and kind of, I did a lot of speaking jobs because I wrote a book and I did speaking jobs on that. So with that speaking, that money went directly into Tenzing and I didn't take a salary for three, four years. I think I said to my wife, I'm not taking a salary for two and a half, ended up being about three and a half. So I had to convince her first. We had to move to a smaller house. We didn't have any garden. We had two kids. We didn't have a garden anymore. It's all those kind of things. So I'm not saying it's massive sacrifice and like suffering, but it is still a big choice if you're early 40s. And you got to lose all the perks you have in life. But that I de-risked that in that sense that because she had a job and we just cut, we cut down massively on expenses that if everything would fail, I would have still lost quite a bit of money because I had a loan of just about $150,000 and I would have had three years of no salary. So if you add that all up, which I didn't do, but if you would add that up, that's good. So I, but I wouldn't, it wouldn't, I just wanted to make sure that it wouldn't like bankrupt me. So the... So the loan I had covered in a way that, like, you know, I would have to pay back. But if I didn't, I could still, whatever, I had a little bit of construction. It's a huge risk. But but uh, the key was that exactly, but it wouldn't bank on me. Mainly, mainly, I think that a lot of founders have that. When you start, it's the, yeah, it's the, like, the worry what everyone would think of you exactly if you would, uh-huh. fail, if you would fail. But I wasn't worried about what Red Bull would think of you. Because, yeah, and would, so... Yeah. What you, you downsize, you manage your personal burn. Yeah. At that time, you had a $150,000 loan. I'm sure that maybe a, a bulk of it went to inventory, probably yeah, the vast exactly. majority of it went to, to inventory. Yeah. Did you have any purchase orders out of the gate? Did you have – what were the those early milestones where yeah. you knew that it was just a matter of time until you were off to the races? Yeah. So what – it was also – I think that was one of my favorite stories because when I – literally, I had so – this is how the order went, right? Like you've literally asked me good questions because it's like uh, where my mind was to start it. Then my wife getting her on board, which is crucial, right? Not only from a financial point of view, but also like, you know, mentally because she's had some, 
you know, support me for years of when me, I was going through that roller coaster or still am. And then, then after that, I said, I want to do it, convinced my wife. And then she said, yes. And I remember sitting behind my desk at home and I Googled mistakes entrepreneurs make when they start their own business. The first thing I did, and I came on to this amazing Harvard Business Review article that I'm very grateful for. And it just said, go to the market as soon as you possibly can, like, test your product. Now, that is, of course, a very, like, in the lean startup and the minimum viable product, it's very commonplace in the digital world, right? Where you just launch something, you test it on Facebook or you test it on the website, or you test your app, and then you start perfecting it. But in the actual product world, it wasn't that much done. You tend to, like, because you want to get, when you go to Walmart or when you go to Whole Foods, you tend to want to show them your actual packaging, your actual drink. But this actually is, this article said, and actually, which was good about it, that a lot of people that failed and a couple of people have made it. And you actually learn quite a lot more, I think, from the people that failed. Because if you make it, it's down to all these things going, some of which you don't even know. But if you fail, it's usually one or two things that you didn't do well, and then you can pinpoint those. So that's what this article is about. And I think, so it should just go to market early. So I had, and that's what I did. I, mean, I had these plastic bottles were like little like trial bottles, and I had some logos and designs. And I wanted to start in the off, in, in like offices, in high and like Whole Foods type, you know, so health retail offices, and and universities. So through my network and through, I just found a health retailer, an office. I went into Google and I found a university, King's College, and I just went there and I just said, "Would you take this? What do you think?" I have three different flavors. They all tried it, and what the article said and what I found out. The good thing about that is that you get buy-in because it's not you're not selling the product. You're literally asking their feedback. And then I could say, oh, thanks for that, because actually just changed the color to blue because that didn't look too... So they actually had... And you always, you always think your own baby is the most beautiful one. So the fact that they co-created this, which they actually did, made them just immediately... Say, and then they said, yeah, I'll, I'll take it. I'll launch it. And those three customers, there was Pod, it was like a lunch chain, King's College and Google were effectively my first year turnover. So if I would... if Looking back, that's the only thing I really would have changed, to be honest, is go to way more of those conversations. Just have a lot more because you get you get so much buy-in. Because after that, when you start to then try and actually sell it, it didn't really work that well because people are like, oh, that's not going to work. And so I think that was the. So I think in the year one, we said we sell a million cans. Anyway, so I think we just sold hundred thousand. So uh, and that's still incredible. Which yeah, it's still incredible, actually. <laughs> Looking back, I'm actually not that. Uh, but then I thought, oh my god, this is not going well. But but it was. I think. Literally 90%, 90%, 95% of that was through those three, especially Google, to be honest, because Google give it free to their employees. Uh, so it's the Google London office, uh, like 15,000 people at the time. So that was like flying. You have to, that's that would be my key advice. Do that. Any start, that is the best advice, I think, for any, because yeah. there's so much advice that it's so hard to say because that could be different for every industry. But this is advice that you always do. Just test your mark, test it genuinely with people that actually have to buy it off you later and that way they will actually probably do that because it's not mm -hmm. good to sell it to them it's funny it reminds me of the first company i ran was a, a mobile ordering startup called slide and now mobile ordering is everywhere but at the time we were one of the first that would let you order alcoholic drinks from your phone so we worked i'm from the boston area we worked with a bunch of bars and i remember early on the only thing I really knew how to do was you walk into a bar, the manager or the owner is never there. So you're actually just sitting there. You're talking uh, to yeah. the bartender for hours, just waiting. 
and you're saying, hey, when, when's the manager? And they don't care. They just want to make money. So you're actually sitting yeah. there. You're having a drink. You're ordering food. You're sitting there for hours. And then the, the manager comes in and says, get the hell out of here. And yeah, then you just exactly. rinse and repeat over yeah. and over again. But that's how we got all of our first customers was showing yeah. face, talking yeah. directly to the people who would be using the product. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that rings true, very true yeah, to me. So and not true. enough people think they, they can put up a Facebook ad and, and be a okay. Yeah. Just... No, you have to go in there, and that's and that was also the big shock for me. Then later with my from my high kind of profile job where I could get a meeting with everyone to literally not even getting a meeting with some assistant buyer of this mini chain. Of, you know, so it was like it was painful. Those those first two years. And next after obviously last year with Corona stuff, but those first two years were tough, really mm-hmm. tough. And not, you know, when I love always the, like the shoe dog books or all the, and, and, or losing my virginity from Richard Branson. And you read that and you, and they tell you how tough it is, but you always think, oh, that's romantic tough because it's in a book. And he's, and now yeah. he owns Nike and Virgin. But yeah. if, when you're in it, which they would have all experienced, which I experienced, and we use, we have experienced, everyone experiences a certain job. It's like tough, but really tough, not fun yeah. and tough. And I think that is, and I think it's also the romance, the romancing of, entrepreneurship i think we could effectively we're doing that now i guess by, by doing this podcast but there is something that i would like to say like having a normal corporate job is could be just as fun and just as fulfilling right even more so you don't have mm-hmm. to do it there's so many people that feel they have to do it and come up with concepts in, in, in fields that they don't really know a lot about end up losing a lot of money, a lot of, a lot of their self-esteem. There's something to be said of just like you know, rolling with your job. So I'm curious. Today, Tenzing is in thousands of stores. You've weathered the storm. And what I found most interesting when I was first introduced to y'all is how much you've prioritized sustainability across the company's DNA. It's yeah. really embedded into a number of parts of the organization. So... Walk us through today what sustainability means to you and how that manifests in the company's values and initiatives today. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So I think I've always been exactly, and also interesting to think about coming on your first question, where that comes from. I used, I've lived all over the place. I even lived in Boston for a couple of months, actually. So I lived in South Africa and I was between seven and 11. And that, that's really, I think, where my love for, for nature grew because I was playing in like rivers that had run dry and we'd like Tarzaning and we'd always we'd work around bare feet all of the year because that was like the cool thing to do when you're like eight in, in South Africa at the time. And, and so I, I, and I've always just loved nature. So I think, and I also looking at like the, for instance, in my time at Red Bull, I, I never liked any of the Formula One or FMX. I just, I don't know. I'm just not into that. I, didn't, I don't know, own a car. I just, I'm, I'm never like a petrol head. Uh, so and I'm always like, even there, my events, the ones I loved were exactly around skiing or more adventure based. So I think that's just something in my DNA. Actually, when my, my, we were traveling with the kids when they were two and a half, we got twins. And my son would always go, I'm going on an adventure. And then he'd go off the path, just next to the path. And it was so cool because I remember asking him, so what's an adventure for you? And he'd be like, no, he'd say like, just where no one's going or where no one has gone. And I thought, wow, that is such a beautiful definition. I think there's something, you know, so that's probably just in his DNA, just like it's in mine. So I, I think I, I love that kind of adventure and nature side of things. So again, that's when you start your own business, you can actually you know, do what you love. 
Because at the end of the day, when you are working for another business, yes, there's the elements in there that you really love, but you can't love it all, right? That's the normal. So I think when you started, so it was always from the beginning. I thought it fit really nicely. You say like energy, you know, from nature for nature. So we've always said that. And so we right from the beginning, we, we said we'll give at least, so the, one of the first things we did, because obviously we were tiny. So we went, I actually spoke to Jumling, which one of the sons of, oh, what's wrong? Close more down. I spoke to Jumling, the son of Shia Patenting, and I said, what could we do in the Himalayas? That's our first project. And he said, well, actually, it's, it was quite well documented in the UK at the time, or in the US, US, that it was quite littered up the way to Everest. Quite a lot of littering going on because the tourists were increasing uh, quite rapidly. And he said, it's, it doesn't sound very sexy, but we need bins. We literally need, because they have these kind of you know oil barrels that would fall over. So we, we need like stone proper made goods where you can have two compartments for your plastics and your others and your cans. And that's what we started off with. So we started off building these bins up to uh, Mount Everest, we built a couple of those. And I've really, obviously, the bigger we went, the more we've supported that. And we had, and then, so we were always just looking for opportunities. So all, our, all the marketing stuff we did was always around nature and sustainability. Then the second thing we launched it was also really cool. And I think that's actually, if I think about it, all the things that came up were just from our genuine passions. So I love to run. I'm a big runner. I, I um, actually, even more so when I started my own business, really my way to keep sane. And uh, then I was running in London or I, and I read a new newspaper and it said, if you run in the city, sometimes the pollution is so bad it negates the positive effects of your running. So I thought, oh my God, and this was a piece uh, that was written by or it, with the data from King's College, which we had the relationship with from because uh, we launched there first. So we got in touch with King's College and, uh, and they were using this data or they had this data, but they weren't really using it. So we said, okay, why don't we like try and make an app that connects your data with Strava? And then, so if you now, what we did, so this was about a year and a half ago, we launched the Clean Air Running Tracker and you can then map your runs. So beforehand on this app, you can map your runs and see, because it's live data, how clean the air is. So you can then just see which runs are the most clean. And then afterwards, this app then connects to your Strava. So you can actually see, you get a Tenzing Clean Air score on your Strava. Oh, so that's you, cool. Yeah, really cool. And actually in 2020, it was voted uh, number one app that will change your life by men's health. So it was really cool. We were just like this plant-based drinks brand that created this app on the side that won all these prizes and is used a lot in the whole uh, London Strava community. So that was, wow. again, from our own passion and from our own, we don't want to run in smog. Can we create something that helps people find the clean air running in the, in the big smoke, uh -huh. as they call London? <laughs> but New York's probably not that much better, I guess. But so that was then cool. And then, and then the last bit actually then happened with in Corona times because lockdown came and it was a really tough time also for me personally somehow i really struggled i was really like you know, oh my god five years of hard work come to an end because a lot of stores we were in just closed down we were very big in gyms like i said the universities offices gyms they're all closed so literally our business halved overnight and i was like oh my god are we gonna make it and everything and and i, I always run on the thames river and there was this kind of sign up. I don't know if that was the thing in the US, but it was all about the essential worker. Is that the same as they said in the US as well? Let's celebrate the essential worker, meaning it's mainly the hospital staff, but also let's say the people that work in the supermarkets, only essential workers could go to work. The rest of us had to stay at home. And, I, and there was a sign where I ran, thanks to the essential workers. And somehow, because I already wasn't in such a great mental state, I think, 
it just hurt me because I was like, God, I'm not essential. My job is that. How essential is that? And then it hit me. I thought, okay, let's double down even more on our environmental mission and just go all in and say, let's become essential to avert the next big crisis. And we said, okay, even though we halved our business, we thought we're going to double down on that side. And I wasn't even convinced at the time that it would really help us sell any more cans. But we just felt also, I think I needed it. The team needed it to have a mission to really get behind it. Because it was really deep in our DNA, it was quite easy for us to obviously get everyone. We have shareholders. They were easily on board. And we decided to become, we started to look at our whole footprint. So we just started, you know, literally we said from crop to can. Look at our whole footprint of our business operations, but also literally, we actually have even had discussions to go as far as we get our tea from Kenya, for instance, Rainforest Alliance. It was ready, but does the tea uh, plucker go to his work on a moped or on a bike? You know, so you would know, be finding that out, like those kind of levels. It's ridiculous. We really wanted to know what is the actual carbon footprint of our, of our whole camp and all operations. And, we, and then we carbon label that. So we've decided to carbon label that. So we'll be the first soft drink in the world that carbon labels their drinks. So no one else does it. I think this Oakley does it. I think there's a couple of fashion brands that do it, but no, we're, we're literally the first ones. And then we go, how can we minimize our footprint? So we're now going to produce even more locally. We were producing in the Netherlands, we moved to the UK. We're sourcing as much products as we can local. So about from the weight of our products, about not nearly 95% is local. Some of the things you literally cannot get in the UK, like green mm-hmm. coffee or green tea, but that's actually very light because we only use a minimal amount. So you just need like the quite you don't want more green coffee than 80 milligrams of, of caffeine, let's say. So it's, it's not a lot of weight. So in that sense, it's actually not a lot of footprint. And we have a boat only, you know, shipping only strategy, for instance. So there's a lot, there's a huge, long and boring <laughs> report about that. And then the third element is then, so minimize. And the third is it offset more than we emit. And we've also got really cool, instead of just offsetting and buying the cheapest, whatever, tons of carbon, we actually offset locally. So where we make our carbon, so for instance, in Kenya, we offset locally there. So we make sure to find a project that's there, and then we offset more than we emit in that specific region or in that specific country. And therefore becoming the first carbon negative energy drink in the world. So that's really been, yeah, that's been the whole kind of cool journey over the last year or so. I know what... I go. No, 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 go, go. I was just saying, I know what the title of this episode is going to be. <laughs> well, but I no, I just think you glossed over it, but I, I want to make sure that we emphasize that soundbite, which is that you've taken the steps to A, put the footprint right onto the product. Yeah. Carbon labeling is a big deal. Like, you can't expect customers to make informed decisions like they do with their nutrition. Yeah. If there isn't, just basic information to help them no. do so. People won't jump through the hoops. No. So I just want to tip my hat to that. And the fact that you're that's just part of this entire universe no. of effort that you're deploying. So just tip my hat to you. That's all. No, it's well, not thanks, essential thanks. and you're doing it. Yeah, um, exactly. Thanks a lot. And it is like and funny enough, what's so cool is that because let's say, for instance, like a year and a half ago, we saw like the rise of bang, the energy drink bang in the US. And yeah. at one point we were like thinking, oh my God, like People don't care about the environment, right? So the Volkswagen scandal, and then the year after, like Volkswagen was the biggest car company in the world. And I also lost my way. We even at one point we said to each other, we should be more bang, just talk about our energy. So it's like they have no sustainability agenda at all. And funny, 
through to the Corona crisis, we just said, we, we literally did it for ourselves. But now, which I also think, you know, as we were discussing with the team the other day, that no one's going to believe us if we say we actually did it for ourselves. But it was true. Like we were like on the brink of like bankruptcy, but we went for it. And then now, it's been such an amazing thing because what I'm, I'm not quite, I don't quite know yet if the actual end drinker, you know, s- still cares that much. There'll be some that definitely do, but what we, what we notice now, our customers, they care a lot and they should, of course, as well. So it's, we've got all these huge companies actually now reaching out to us because they want us to be part of it. So that's just the interesting bit. So that's where it starts then. So it's actually been really cool for us to kind of You've got the one-two punch because you're already winning on the product itself. There's a massive trend, I think, globally, but definitely here in the U.S., which is people want healthier highs. You look at the the yeah, emergence of good. companies like Recess, right? Yeah. Instead of drinking alcohol, they'll get a C- yeah. yeah, get a CBD drink. There's just people are. Feels like we're always talking about people are being more conscious about what they put in their bodies, but now it feels yeah. like there's real staying power because there's massive depth of selection that yeah. fits your taste needs and now the, the second one is going to be like also knowing that what you're when you're shopping you can also shop relatively guilt-free and so yeah. now if you can check both of those boxes which, which is what you're doing yeah no exactly what, what do you come that's... so hmm? uh, I, w- I was just gonna say you're on amazon in the u.s but i'm curious the u.s has got to be in the strike zone now right i think the cool the u.s is just so so huge, right? And so we thought, because we're doing, again, due to Corona, we were always doing quite well on Amazon, but Amazon became really big for us in the UK. And then we thought, okay, that's also future-proof our business a bit, and you never know how long this is going to take. And actually, we ended up doing really well. So we thought, like I said, we thought we weren't going to make it, but we actually ended up growing, with growing about 40% uh, in, our, in, in the channels that we were in, in the whole lockdown. So hopefully now, especially in the UK, obviously going really well with all the, the vaccination process, whatever. So people are really opening up all the pubs and all the gyms opened yesterday. So we thought that I think key with any startup, you have to don't burn too much cash or too much of your resources. So we literally try on Amazon only for about a year, see how it goes, and then we can roll up in a bigger way. Because you, you need a bit of traction. I think the US is a country where also, like to be honest, even in the Netherlands, which is a lot smaller than the UK, and they look to the UKs for some things like in retail, what's happening? Because I'd say they were, the UK is definitely a bit ahead, London's definitely a bit ahead there. But even there, I find it quite difficult to say, yeah, but it's really successful in the UK. And then even in Holland, they're like, yeah, so what? So in the US, that's even more. If I say, oh, my drink's doing really well in the UK, Walmart, they're like, yeah, who cares? You know. So I think for us to prove our point on Amazon first, and then it's quite it's easier to say then what's all part of Amazon is Whole Foods, for instance. Now we're doing well in Whole Foods in the UK. If we do well on Amazon, we should be able to get into Whole Foods US. And then if we do well there, I think it's a bit of that trickle mm-hmm. down system where you try that go all in on Amazon first. Mm-hmm. And then we're still in that and, and Amazon is a bit of always a bit it's a it's a slow burner. So you, you get on there. So everyone is listening. Please buy one and leave a review. <laughs> if you like That's it, what of it course. is. Because I think in the beginning, literally like one review now, and one if someone buys it, really likes it, and puts a positive review in, it's worth so much like a year down the line. So I'll be forever grateful because it is, it's, it, is, it is finding that new way to energize ourselves. That is mm-hmm. pure for plants, low calorie and sustainable. And I think to make that happen, we need that first traction on, on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the last question that I've been thinking about is, you've been running this company for a few years 
international is interesting to you. You are technically international already, but yeah. expanding into into really big markets like the US. But I'm just curious, over the next 24 months, what is in the top of the priority chart for Tenzing? Is it new SKUs? Is it new countries? What does that roadmap look like over the next 24 months? So, look, UK, like US is a whole different beast altogether, right? by far the biggest um, country when it comes to the, the drinking of energy drinks and the you know, soft drinks and all the drinks, all <laughs> drinks, no matter what, biggest one. But the UK is relatively high up there. If, if, so I think the UK will, so I think the, the, a couple of priorities is our rate of sale. You know, So we're in all the big retailers here. So rates of sale there, we're actually in that middle bit where we're nowhere near the, the monsters, the Red Bulls, but we're actually doing significantly better than all the other stuff. So we have to like nearly not catch on to the to those the kind of more bigger boys because that will then open up the more, so let's say Tesco has 2,200 stores and we're only like 700 of them. As soon as you get more rates of sale, they'll open up more stores. So I think I would say that's the number one. And then the number two is make Amazon US work. Because if you talk about 24 months, I would like, you know, I'd love the, the plan to look as simple as this, make it work in the next 12, and then find a way to properly launch in actual action retail, retail outlets. And even keep that relatively small, like Motion Whole Foods, whatever, some of the, you know, the more specialized health stores so that you can build on afterwards. I would actually say those, those are the two key ones. Yeah. I love it. Hub, the, the last question of every interview is, is, Totally off topic. It's around this notion of the idea graveyard. Uh, and I think we're probably like in this, but I, I'm curious if you have one idea in your notes, right? One idea that you'd love to work on if you had the time to do, but for now is just rotting away in your idea graveyard. Yeah. I've always actually, it's so funny, so funny, because I've got, yeah, you really are probably liking that because I've got a lot of them. Got old moleskin books full of them, you know. <laughs> but I've always said, well, I like to have just audacious goals that I love and just go for. And I, one of the things that I'm actually working on that's not in the graveyard is I said, I want to be the most sustainable. We had a good group of friends in 2020. We got together and we, we put out um, uh, decade declarations, which I thought was quite cool. That obviously Corona happened. But anyway, still, mine's going strong. I said, my decade declaration was to, be to literally be the most sustainable brand on earth. So when you think of the most sustainable brand, you'll think of Tenzin. That is my goal. And I think that's just a cool thing. Not only, It's not only an ego thing, because it's also, I want to, we've actually got the one we do with the, the carbon labeling with, just sent me a mail today and said, hey, just so you know, a couple of really big multinational companies have come to us since we've done this. We've only launched like three weeks ago. And said, you guys do Tenzin. We're also wanting to look at that. So it shows that as a small player, you can actually be really influential and really change the whole thing because that's the goal, right? So I, was, I want to have a you know business that it's creative and fun to work for, but actually also how cool it would be to make a difference. So that's the one that's not on the graveyard. That's actually been worked on hard. But I've always loved, I said that in the beginning already, I've always loved events. So what I really like about that, let's say if you make an ad, to be honest, funny enough with this podcast, the cool thing about this podcast is that it's fun to do. So we're having, I'm loving talking to you. But then if you, if there's 25,000 people listening to it or two, is that, does that really matter? Yes, it matters for other things, but not for your enjoyment. And I always find that also, with, let's say if you make an ad or a website, I don't think it's very fulfilling because you make it 
some people might watch it, then what? And you see maybe an awareness score go up somewhere. But I think that's what I love about events is you work on a creative process, you're working on a project, and then it's there and there's people there having fun. And it's just, so one of the, I've always, Glastonbury in the UK is one of the big events. I always thought, wow, I'd love to be that guy. I'll have to my own, just have an own event that's back. So we had like with Tenting, we were already thinking about like a Tenting Forest Festival where everything is like 100% carbon negative and by the take the phone and it's all about being connecting with each other and connecting with, like, connecting with nature. And so that is one that I'd love to, that will happen one day, but now, now I'm focusing on getting the funds to make that happen. But that would be my big dream, yeah, to do. So you're, I hereby send you an, uh, an invitation. <laughs> <laughs> if, that, if it were to happen somewhere in the next years. I'd love to roll up the red carpet. Are there any final call to actions, hiring needs, anything that you want to leave with our listeners, the floor is yours. Just to emphasize again, if you want to be part of the plant-based and sustainable revolution, then now is the time you can, you know, to really make an impact in the US because exactly, like I said, every order and every kind of review. And I think it's just really, it makes a huge difference. I think it's quite fun because I get a lot of that on my LinkedIn, for instance, or people that have followed me from the beginning and followed the journey. I still get a lot of, oh, I was there from the beginning. So I think there's this whole, if you do leave a review now, and we do get, we do uh, keep on growing like we are, you'd be one of the first out there that tried it and made that review. So I think that's, uh, I'd love love for many people to come on this journey. Hub, I just want to say once again, thank you for for coming on the show. I am gladly welcoming Tenzing into the to the American soil. After this, I'll be placing my first order. I'll give my unadulterated review and leave an Amazon review. That is major key. <laughs> leave that Amazon review. But anyways, Hub, such a pleasure. You crushed it. I I am emphatic for the next five years of Tenzing, and I'm also excited for round two when we can talk about how successful the American launch has been. Yeah, that'd be great. We'd love to, love to chat again. Really fun, cool, lots man. of fun talking to you, man. All right, take care. Hey there, you made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rock star founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, Message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.